Good morning, Calvary. Good morning to our online listeners as well. We are so glad you're here as we are continuing the process of journeying towards uh, Jerusalem. And when Jesus gathered with the disciples in the upper room, they were celebrating a traditional feast, the feast of the Passover. And what you're going to see today is we're going to marry the, the Passover feast as Jesus did with where he is heading in the Easter story. So as we're journeying on this uh, process together, we're going to attempt to marry both the idea of celebration with the idea of discomfort, the idea of um, God doing something great with the reality we're not yet home. And this is important for us to understand because we're on a journey. Easter, y'all, that was a southern thing to say, is three weeks away. It's three weeks away. And the reason that we walk through the Easter story is the same reason that Jesus, when he gathered with the disciples in this upper room, were connecting with generations in the past. The story of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation into our lives today is all united. This isn't just a blip on the radar that we're existing. We are a part of a bigger picture, a bigger story that is generationally woven together. And that's where we're going today. So if you have your Bibles or your Luke books, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to him, I have fervently desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. Did you get that? I fervently desired to eat this meal with you. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, Take and share this among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is now given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. We've heard these passages if you've grown up in the church and We're going to practice something today that is often called communion. That stands for common unity or the Lord's Supper. And this is a place where we gather and we remember what Jesus did here. And as we're doing this, we're not only connecting to Jesus, we're connecting to what the disciples went through. And if you realize what's going on here is Jesus is marrying the Lord's Supper to what happened in the Old Testament Passover event. Okay? So... I want you to understand one thing right from the beginning. The Passover feast was a feast. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, I'm going to refer to it as the Lord's Supper the rest of the morning probably, is supposed to be a feast. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have one cracker and a little bit of juice, it doesn't feel like a feast. But it is important to understand that is what it's symbolic of, and and that's what's connecting. Why? Because feasting is important. Feasting is a celebration. 
Feasting is a, a reminder of God's provision. Feasting is a time where we unite with the people who are experiencing life with us. Let's translate this into modern day world, right? If I think about feasting, I, I naturally think of Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, right? Where we stress out over having just the perfect meal. We, we, we long to have, and if you realize, Thanksgiving is usually centered around the, the, the table. And, and if you gather together, what you're hoping for is a connection. So when we as ministers go out to meals with people like you, what we're often doing is over the breaking of bread, another way to say eating food if you don't know that, the breaking of bread, there's a commonality that says we all have to eat, but what we're doing in that moment is we're celebrating the fact that we have this commonality and being thankful for God's provision. This is why historically people have started to pray before they eat their meals. And sometimes we do this just so rotely. We, we do it so ritualistically. We miss the fact that when we pray before a meal, what we're really saying is, God, you supplied this meal. We are able to celebrate around this table. We are able to rejoice because you have provided. This connects us not only to what's happening today and not only to God, but as a reminder throughout the history of humanity we have had to lean into God's provision. We have had to be faithful and, and trust that all the way back through the Old Testament, through the beginning of time. Now here's the reality. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they didn't have to worry about God's provision. When did they have to start worrying about God's provision? Once they sinned. And when sin entered this world, we became broken. And when the broken world breaks, what happens is people start taking advantage. And, and they start manipulating the circumstances. And so it creates this problem where we struggle sometimes. And there are cultures that struggle with food because of sin. There's, there's a reality that this would not have happened if we were still in the Garden of Eden. Do you understand that? Yet, God provides. So when we gather together, if, if you notice there, it says, He longed fervently to eat this Passover with them. He was saying, do you see that I wanted to be with you? I wanted this commonality. And so I want us to understand right from the beginning, feasting is not an end, but a reminder of God's faithfulness. Yes, we've already talked about that. But I also want us to see how it bonds us with the generations that are to come. This is why, let me just encourage you, families, do not neglect the eating together as a family for the sake of a busy schedule. You will bond more around a family ever so much more than you ever will in a car hustling from place to place. Do not neglect it. You want to build friendships? Eat with them. You want to go on a date? Eat. Yeah, I know it's awkward. Because there's something about, are they going to judge the way I eat? But that's where you bond. That's, that's a connection, and it is a celebration that we need to understand. So when Jesus was gathering with them, he was celebrating. God has been faithful. And it, it describes the idea of the Passover, and it reminded the Jews of God's deliverance. So the Passover feast reminded the Jews of God's deliverance from Egypt, where the blood of a lamb was placed over a wooden doorpost, saving the house from death. Now, this is when Jesus is paralleling what has happened in the Passover. And you might be going, Daniel, why don't we celebrate the Passover anymore? We do. It's called communion. 
or the Lord's Supper. We do. It's called the Easter story. And Jesus is saying, this is now the new covenant that he just described. He's saying, this is now the new place that we're living. And so if you realize the parallel that's what's going on, Jesus is setting up the new by telling him what is to come. He's both marrying the celebration of God's faithfulness in the past and saying the road ahead may be difficult. There may be some struggles. Let's walk this through. So in the Old Testament, in the story of Exodus, there was a man by the name of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, that kind of stinks, right? Sold into slavery by his brothers, but God used that for good, and Joseph was faithful. And so he was sold into slavery and went to Egypt, and he grew in wisdom, and he grew in stature, he grew in prominence to the place where he would eventually be the right-hand man of Pharaoh himself. Now, a famine entered the land of Israel. Some of you are like, I know this, but I think it's important for us all to be on the same page, okay? A famine. and So once again, we're talking about feasting. There wasn't a feast because there was an absence of food. And all of Joseph's family was going, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we've heard there's food in Egypt. So they go on this pilgrimage to Egypt where they encounter their older brother who, had, who they had betrayed. Now this older brother could have been like, eh, right? How dare you? But he didn't. Instead, he said, God has used this for me to provide for the family. And so Joseph's family moves with him to Egypt, and they begin to multiply like rabbits to the place where the Egyptians started becoming scared of them. So what do you do in a sinful world when someone starts threatening you? You have a choice. You attack them, you run away, or you try to manipulate your power over them. They chose option C. And so they started to enslave the Israelite people. Once again, you could read this through the story of Exodus. And as they began to enslave them, it didn't keep them down. They kept multiplying, and they kept growing. So the more they multiplied, the more that God found favor in them, the enemy, the Egyptians at the time, began to suppress them more and more and more to a place where it became terrible existence, okay? It became uh, very burdensome, and God's people started crying out, God, God, help save us deliver us, provide for us. Do you see the feast has now turned into a famine? Do you see the, the triumph has now turned into tragedy? To the place where they're going, God, what do we do? Now, of course, what happens is God raises up a man by the name of Moses, who the very fact that he survived was a miracle because the Pharaoh at the time had become so concerned about the Egyptians, he had ordered that all males born be killed. That's how evil the world was. You think our world's evil? Hmm. And so as they were killed, they came to the place, and, and Moses survived, and, and God allowed Moses to grow up in Pharaoh's household to eventually be able to come and speak to Pharaoh and to say those famous words, let my people go. Now, I am not a worship pastor, so I apologize for singing. And I, Pharaoh went, sure, take all these wonderful workers, get out of here, go have a great— No, he didn't, because he, he realized this was a commodity. He was using the people as a commodity. And so God said, 
Tell him I'm going to send some plagues. So plague after plague, and he starts to set them free. And then, no, I'm not going to go. And he starts to set them free until the tenth plague comes. And what's the last plague? The last plague is the reason they celebrated Passover. And it is both symbolic for how the God's people were freed and foreshadows the coming of Christ. Why? Because here's the story. They were going to, an angel of the Lord was going to come over and destroy or kill the oldest son born in every house that didn't have the blood of a lamb sprinkled over the doorpost of the home. It was the blood of the lamb on the wooden cross that saved them. So Pharaoh's house becomes sad the people of Egypt become sad. They're like, send them out. So, of course, they left Egypt and lived happily ever after. No, actually what happens is they, they start going, God, where do you want us to go? And he goes, I want you to go there. And they're like, oh, I don't think you want us to go there. But there's giants in the land. And so the course of that, God goes, you still aren't learning the lesson. Does this, sound, does this resonate with anybody? The Passover feast was symbolic of the fact that the angel passed over their house because the blood of the lamb was there. And God's people witnessed that, and yet they still doubted God. You're going to see that play out in the story we just read. And through the course of that, God's people then had to wander through the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for an entire generation had to pass away before they got to the promised land, symbolic of the life we live in is the wilderness. The promised land is to come. Now, here's the interesting thing. God's people didn't have to worry about the food when they're in the wilderness, but they complained about it. What did they get every day? Crackers called manna. Bread. Okay, Technically, manna is not crackers, but you would have felt like these crackers tasted probably better than the manna. But it survived. It, it allowed them to nurse and to grow. And, and God, they didn't even have to hunt for it. They woke up and there was the manna. Woohoo! Yay! God, this doesn't feel like a feast. Where are you? But the feast was to come. So, fast forward to Jesus' time. They had wrapped a celebration called the Passover feast and had married this with their identity and they did it ritualistically to remind them and to bond them with their ancestors of a time how God had delivered them and how the food on their table was a gift from the Lord. And Jesus is about to shake their world by changing the meaning of what the Passover feast would be all about. See, the memory of the feast would soon take on a new meaning. The Passover itself would take on new meaning. It, Jesus fully explains what he has come to do with a meal. And everything this meal had symbolized historically would take on new meaning because Jesus reveals himself at the ultimate sacrifice poured out over our deliverance. So once again, the Passover included slavery. It included a bondage to something that you're in control. We are in bondage to our sin. That's the words that Romans used to describe that. We are enslaved to our sin. We needed a rescuer, but yet there is a refusal to surrender by not only Pharaoh's people, but the Egyptians and as well as the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. God, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. A refusal to trust God's 
control. Yet there was a rescue signified by the blood of an innocent lamb on a crossbeam that allowed the people to go, reminding them of the wilderness that is to come, but the promised land that is promised. The Passover would now be Easter. So as we do that, what we're really trying to understand is what the Lord has delivered us. If I were to ask you right here now, what's the biggest sacrifice someone has ever made for you? You know what you'd probably think of outside of Jesus, because you're supposed to say that. But if I were to really pull you and go into the depths of your mind, and I asked you what the biggest sacrifice someone ever did for you, that you probably didn't think of Jesus. You probably thought of something your mom did or Uncle Tom or whoever, right? And in the course of that, what you realize is most of the sacrifices that have been done for you weren't, by definition, sacrifices. They were given out of the abundance of what they already had. If someone gave you a great financial gift, it's usually done because they had extra to give. What did they have to give up? They had to give up cable in order to give you. They didn't have to give up their food. Or they gave you an abundance of time that they had extra time of. And sure, they might have had to give up a little bit of time over here and there, but it wasn't a sacrifice like it cost them everything. And yet here's the story of Jesus who is telling them, I'm about to give you everything. And so when we take this, yes, it is a feast because we have been given a celebration that is above all and through all and over all, and it is glorifying, it is exalting to God when we commemorate what God has done for us. It is a celebration. But it is also a pause to grieve of our own sins our own sacrifice. So let us be reminded of what he did. You see, the Lord's Supper, though the imagery is difficult, must serve as a, remember, a reminder of what the Deliverer did for us. Squeamish alert. I'm about to tell you some in-depth coverage of what took place on the cross. If you can, I encourage you to listen, but if you're just that person who's going to faint, don't. Here's an excerpt from an author by the name of Cora Evans as she describes what happened to Jesus through the crucifixion. The prisoner was tied to a pillar and flogged with sticks and a special whip. The Roman scourging whip had iron balls tied with a few inches from the end of the leather thong on a whip. Sometimes sharp sheep bones would be tied near the ends. The metal weights served to cause serious bruising or contusions, and the leather of the thongs cut into the skin. The sheep bones were also made to deepen the lacerations into the skin. And after only a few lashes, the depths of the cuts would reach into the muscle tissue. And I wrote in my notes redacted because I couldn't even read the next part. The physical effects of the beating went far beyond the considerable pain it inflicted. With his flesh torn in two on either side, he must have lost a lot of blood before even getting near the cross. Part two. 
The condemned would be forced to carry the crossbeam from the prison inside the city to a location outside the city. The, pros- the crossbeam would have weighed about 100 pounds. Here we can imagine how difficult it would have been for even any adult man at full strength to carry a crossbeam of any distance. But Jesus picked up his cross, having spent a wretched night in prison with little to no sleep, watching his own people condemn him and being brutally scourged. At the destination of Calvary, Jesus was first stripped of his garment. The pictures we have of crucifixes always give us Jesus wearing a loincloth, but in reality, Roman crucifixion was designed to be as gruesome, as humiliating a death as possible. So the condemned were stripped naked in order to die with as little dignity as possible. So when you see a picture of Jesus wearing a loincloth, that wasn't the way it actually was. Next were the nails. Iron spikes that averaged five to seven inches in length were used to nail the arms of the condemned to the crossbeam in the wrists. And after the victim was nailed to the crossbeam, it was raised up and attached to the vertical beam, and the victim's feet were nailed into the vertical beam. Death awaited. Oh, death would surely come, most often by a combination of blood loss from the scourging, and the victim would only be able to take shallow breaths until his arms weakened. At that point, he would have to push up his body with his feet to breathe. This would have been terribly painful on multiple levels, putting pressure on the nail wounds in the feet and hands and rubbing the open wounds on his back against a large beam of of wood. It is here. And with this picture and this background, Jesus would have uttered his last words from the cross, all of which probably labored and difficult. Father, Into your hands, I entrust my spirit. And Jesus died for us. But the tomb would not hold him. Just as Jesus did not leave us in our sin, the tomb could not contain him. Jesus did not leave us in our sin, but made a way for us to be restored. He is alive, he is living, and he is well today. So when you ask me, Daniel, why do we observe the Lord's Supper? It is to remind us of what he did. It is a sacrifice. It is a somber moment. Yet, it is a feast of celebration. It is a reminder of our brokenness, yet is it a cause for rejoicing. We are still in the wilderness of our human existence. There will be feasts and there will be struggles, yet the Lord has provided. The Lord will provide it. Our manna, our daily bread, is being provided for us daily in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Presence is everything Intimacy with God sustains us. He is faithful. So church, how are you broken? Are you trying to fix it all yourself? Or do we need to leave it at the foot of the cross? Do you sense the power 
of what Jesus did for you? Yet Jesus gathered with his disciples knowing that pain was just hours away. And in the feast, he would say, take this bread and drink this juice and what is to come. The disciples were clueless, and I think sometimes that's good because it reminds us that we're clueless. <laughs> Let me speak for myself. It reminds me that I'm clueless at times. And sometimes we just walk through the motions. And you know how I know they're clueless? Go back up to the top there where it says, verse 23. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it was going to be who was going to do it. Who's going to do what? Betray. Who's going to betray Jesus? It was Judas. And Judas was the one who did. In case you didn't know, it was Judas. But yet, here's what I find. Jesus, even though knowing Judas was going to betray him, still washed his feet when he entered the room. And so the disciples wanted to know, is it me? But Jesus wasn't going to let it stop there. Instead, he, he looked at them and he said, uh, Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. Ah, I would never do that. Cockadoodle, oops. And you think it stops there, right? But no, look to the very next verse, verse 24, and you see the problem with us as humans. As we sit there and think, I would never do that. Then a dispute rose out among them about who should be considered the greatest. Do you realize what happened there? Is they're going, it wouldn't be me. Why? Because Jesus loves me. Did you see him pull me aside for five minutes and give me encouragement? It wouldn't be me. He loved me. Do you see how he, he picked me when I was out fishing? Do you see, it couldn't be me. Jesus, and Jesus does love us, but he doesn't love you more than everyone else. And maybe instead of trying to find your worth and value by being better than everyone else, maybe we need to empty ourselves and be reminded that we are all like Peter. Yes, we are all like Judas. And in that brokenness, in that discomfort, in that agony, we also get to celebrate a feast. Why? Because the feast and the famine are combined by the hope that is to come. So we observe the Lord's Supper. We observe the Lord's Supper to serve as a feast. We serve the Lord's Supper as a moment of reflection. We serve the Lord's Supper because it reminds us of our need for repentance and grace. And finally, we serve the Lord's Supper because it unites us to Christ and one another. Hey, when you, when you take this, you're not just combining with our church. We're gathered around the table today. Yes, I know there's not a table literally. Wait, wait. Now there is. But we gathered around the table when we are bonding not only with who we're supposed to be today, but we're bonding with Peter in the upper room. And yeah, we may walk out of here and deny Christ, but he is still faithful and loving and kind. If you need one of these, our deacons will pass around. If you have a relationship with Jesus, we'd love for you to participate. If you don't, we'd ask you to sit this out in observance of our faith. If you need one, raise your hand and they'll bring you one. But as we do this, I'm going to give you a little space. There's a space to be both mindful of the need for this, of our brokenness, 
And like we're supposed to do when we say a prayer before the service starts. Lord, thank you for your provision. Not just of a cracker and juice, but your provision for us. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there'll be people who, who are up front with you. We'd love to talk to you about how you can declare Jesus is Lord and how he will love you right where you are. That's why he picked a ragtag group of misfits that he called disciples to show us his love. So take the next 45 seconds, church. Pause and thank God for what he's done. Ask him for repentance and then thank him for what he's done. And then we will take the bread and the juice together. Wait for me as we leave today. Death would pass over us because Jesus would allow his body to be broken for us. Let us remember his sacrifice. Take this remembrance of me. And as we take this juice, let it be reminded of how Jesus was willing to go through excruciating pain to, to pour out his very life so your life could be poured out in abundance, restoration, healing. Take this in remembrance of him. And through the brokenness of that moment, let us not look past what the disciples did right as they left. You see, Jesus instructed them, Let's sing a hymn and go out and celebrate the feast and remind us that we may be in the wilderness now, but our promised land is coming. That this man of suffering is worthy of praise. That this brokenness that we may feel now will one day be wholly and completely redeemed. So church, we have much to celebrate even in our brokenness. Let us respond to how good and faithful he is. Father, move in our hearts and our lives today. Would you be exalted and glorified in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.